0: By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for the honor of the holy and undivided Trinity, for the glory and adornment of the Virgin Mother of God, for the exaltation of the Catholic faith, and for the furtherance of the Catholic religion, by the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord, of the blessed Apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own, we declare, pronounce, and define. That the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin, is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. Hence, if anyone shall dare, and God forbid, to think otherwise than has been defined by us. Let him know and understand that he is condemned by his own judgment, that he has suffered shipwreck in the faith, that he has separated from the unity of the church, and that furthermore, by his own action, he incurs the penalties established by law if he should dare to express in words or writing or by any other outward means the errors he thinks in his heart. That comes from a document known as Ineffabilis Deus which is allegedly an infallible declaration from the Roman Catholic Church. And according to Roman Catholicism you are not a Christian. You have suffered shipwreck of your faith. You are not a Christian and you deserve capital will not cap, you deserve legal punishment. If you do not believe that Mary was a perfect human being you must believe that she not only never committed any sin during the entire duration of her life, but taken beyond that, you must affirm that from the moment of her conception, she never even inherited the original sin from Adam that all other human beings have inherited. She was preserved free from sin from the moment of her conception to the moment of the end of her life. Now, I ask the question, must one believe Mary was perfect throughout her entire life to be a Christian? More importantly, is that even true? If you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, please. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. When you are there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We began a series last week, our Advent series, working through what I'm calling Myths of Mary. Some of the ancient traditions and myths that have crept in to the Christian church in which I believe not only distract us from Christ every day of the year, but especially come Advent season, have a peculiar capacity to take our focus off of Christ. And the Marian myth that I want us to look at this week is what is known, at least in some churches, as the Immaculate Conception. Mary's Immaculate Conception. However, I need to clarify something because I am being um, uh, a little unfair here. Uh, I am sort of addressing two different issues under one title. So there's two understandings of Mary that exist very popular in the world today um, that are related but different. One of them is just a general belief that Mary was perfect from the moment of her birth till the moment that she died. And some people believe she didn't even die, but that she was ascended into heaven. But that's one of the other myths we're going to look at. So from the moment of her birth to the end of her life, she never committed a single sin. That's a widely held belief. Uh, And that's not technically what the Immaculate Conception is. It's part of it. But the Roman Church, that's popular in the East. The Roman Catholic Church has taken this doctrine... And then they've taken it even step further. And they've said, Mary was not just perfect the moment that she was born. She was perfect from the very moment of her conception. So in the Eastern world, they believe that Mary was conceived in her mother's womb the way all of us were, with sin. She, she was conceived in sin, with original sin. But that God purified her in the womb and made her perfect. So that she was born perfect and then she lived perfectly. That's the popular view in the Eastern world, but Roman Catholicism, again, has taken it that step further, where she wasn't just born perfect, she was conceived perfect. Admittedly, when I say, just for today, when I say the Immaculate Conception, I'm talking about both opinions. I'm talking both that she was conceived and lived a perfect life. I'm sort of packaging those under the title, the Immaculate Conception. The belief that she was conceived without sin, born without sin, and that she lived perfectly, never committing any sin of any kind. She obeyed the law of God with absolute perfection. I want us to answer that question. Did Mary live a perfect life, and was she conceived without sin? And this morning, I'm going to give you three arguments for why we ought to reject this idea. Mary was not conceived without sin. Mary did not live a sinless life. I want to give three arguments against that and I want us then to see how this actually matters because it so greatly distracts us from one of the glories of Christ at Christmas time. And so we're going to turn it at the end of the sermon to see how we can turn this aberrant belief into something that actually honors and glorifies Christ at Christmas time. So let's begin with our arguments. I'm sort of ascending from the least important to the most important. Uh, But the, the the least important, but still important nonetheless, the argument I would like to first give to you is church history. Church history. If you believe that Mary was conceived perfect, born perfect, and lived a perfect life, and you were hoping to find this as an ancient belief in the Christian Church, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It is actually very easy. Unlike most doctrines, it's actually quite easy to trace the development of this idea through history. In the early centuries of the church, meaning the first two, three hundred years after the death of the last apostle, it is unanimous. Most most of the, the authors we have from this age don't even really write much about Mary, but the ones who do, it is unanimous that they saw her as a sinner. The early church understood that Mary, like you and me, was born in sin and did not live a perfect life. And then fairly early on into, we'll say, the 400s, the 500s, and the 600s, we start to see this idea developing that she was conceived with sin. Yeah, we all are. But she was born perfect and lived a perfect life. And then in very recent times, like we're talking the 19th century, is when Rome takes that final step to she was conceived without sin, something the Eastern world has not followed the Western world in believing So again, it's very easy to see a development of Mary becoming a normal sinner to living a perfect life, born perfect, to conceived perfect. Very obvious development of this belief throughout church history. So in other words, what I'm saying is this is not ancient. This is novel. This is made up. It's made up. If you don't believe me, um, among the early Christians, scholars cite incredibly influential names and they can give very clear, direct quotations of these men talking about the sins of Mary. These, these names might not mean much to you, and that's okay if it doesn't. But I'm just going to list them just in case, you know, they're important figures. And so hopefully over time, uh, we'll become more familiar with these names. But men, early theologians like Origen, Basil, Chrysostom, Cyril of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Hilary, all have clear teachings that Mary was a sinner. It was, again, not until a much later date that Mary was said to be perfect. And so, Mary living a sinless life has very, very histo- very poor historical pedigree. The idea that she was immaculately conceived is even worse. Like, it's even, in an even worse theological boat. The earliest reference we have to any Christian theologian even mentioning The idea that Mary was conceived without sin comes from a man named John of Damascus arguing in the 8th century. You cannot find anyone even hinting at this until the 8th century. The Immaculate Conception has zero momentum throughout Christendom for at least 600 years after the death of the last apostle. And 600 years is a long time. To put that into perspective, the United States of America isn't even half that old. The United States of America is about 300 years old. A lot can happen in 300 years. How much has the world changed in the last 300 years? Now double it. How much can doctrine develop? How much can customs change in 600 years? That's how long it took before a theologian, one single theologian, it's not even the universal view of the church, one single man in the 8th century says, you know, I think it would be fitting that the womb that Jesus was inside was a perfect womb. It didn't even become passionately, and this was just a suggestion from John of Damascus, it didn't even become passionately argued for until a 12th century British monk named Edmer. Edmer, in the 12th century, is the first time we have a a man writing, no, this is absolutely true, and guess what? The vast majority of the theologians of his day rejected it. So in the 12th century is the first time it's argued for, and it's the minority report still. It isn't until 1,800 years after the death of the last apostle that the Immaculate Conception becomes the unanimous opinion of one church in one part of the world. It's made up. Ironically, the Roman Catholic Church, the only church in the entire world that teaches that Mary was Immaculate Conceived, before the Roman Catholic Church made that definition that I read to you, at the beginning of the sermon, even Roman Catholics didn't believe in this view. One of the greatest scholars that Roman Catholicism has ever produced is a man named Thomas Aquinas. And even we as Protestants give him a lot of credit. Even we as Protestants will admit that he is one of the greatest theologians, the most brilliant philosophers to ever live. And Thomas Aquinas... He believed Mary was perfect because that was just kind of the idea of his day in the medieval ages. But he did not believe she was conceived without sin. He rejected a doctrine that Rome today says you've made shipwreck of your faith if you reject it. And if that's not worse, Philip Schaff, who's one of the most important and, and reverent uh, or popular, is a better word, historians of all time. Philip Schaff in his church history commentaries can give you seven Roman Catholic popes who denied the Immaculate Conception. The popes didn't believe this, the theologians didn't believe this, the church didn't believe this until about 1800 years after the death of the last apostle. It's made up. It's made up. A Roman Catholic historian named Juniper Carroll recognizes this, at least for the Western theologians saying this from the, ex, from the extent philological data from, from the data we have maybe there's some mystery documents out there we've never discovered I don't know but from what we have it does not seem that the personal sinlessness of Mary or her immaculate conception were ever explicitly taught in the patristic west it's made up that's our first argument an argument from church history but I have a more important argument than that the second argument is the silence of Scripture. The silence of Scripture. The fact remains that Scripture never, ever, ever calls Mary perfect. It doesn't say a word about it. To be honest, the Scriptures actually say relatively little about Mary at all. The Scriptures never speak a word of her living a sinless life or of being conceived without sin. And I ask you again, what are the odds if... if Scripture were to fail to address that this one person, by the way, and this is so crucial to Christianity that if you'd reject it, you've made shipwreck of your faith. And the scriptures just forget. The scriptural authors just forgot to include this crucial Christian doctrine in all of the writings that we have. What makes this silence even more damning is it's not as if the Bible is afraid to go out of its way to talk about the holiness of other people. Let me just give you one example from Jesus' own mouth in Luke 7. Jesus, speaking of John the Baptist, says this, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It's interesting that Jesus um, would, would tell people that of everyone born of a woman, he's the holiest. But that's not actually true because Mary was born of a woman. Isn't she the perfect one? And, 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 and you could say, well, Jesus is being hyperbolic because Jesus was born of a woman, and we obviously know he's not talking about himself, so maybe this is just a general statement. But I still say, what are the odds that Jesus would go out of his way to tell people, John the Baptist is the, other than me, he's the holiest guy you'll ever meet, when Jesus' own mother is significantly holier than him? Isn't that kind of disrespectful? All right? John the Baptist is very holy except for my mom she's way holier than him no he intentionally just leaves his mother out or is it possible that Jesus actually believed John the Baptist was holier than Mary what's more likely that Jesus forgot that he intentionally left her out or that Jesus and the rest of the scriptures simply just didn't believe this the silence of Scripture is damning. Now, there are some Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox theologians will admit the Bible doesn't teach this, and they say, we get it from other places. But believe it or not, there are some people who argue, no, this is in the Bible. The Bible positively teaches that Mary was a perfect human being. Now, you want to see where they go? Go back to our text that we read this morning in Luke chapter 1, and look with me at Verse 28. We're about to read that Mary was sinless. We already read this. Have you missed it? You can be forgiven and excused. You can hear it now. Luke 1.28 Speaking of the angel Gabriel, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. There it is. In all its glory. Luke 1.28 The argument is that the ESV, as I read it to you, the greeting of the angel is, O oh, favored one. Uh, is anyone, does anyone in this church read it from a King James or a New King James Bible by chance? Uh, what, I mean, who knows what the King James says in this text? King James says, Hail Mary, full of grace. And that's where the English language comes for Roman Catholics when they pray the rosary. That's, where, that's what it means to pray a Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, and then it goes on. And so Roman Catholics have memorized the, the phrase, Hail Mary, full of grace. And the argument is that the Greek word under full of grace, there's one Greek word there. And the argument is that that Greek word means perfect. That it's, uh, the, the angel is, sempl- is essentially saying, you are so full of grace, there's so much grace in you that you have to be perfect. You're filled with the perfection of of grace, And so the angel appeared to Mary and told her that she was perfect. And apparently Mary didn't know because if you read later on, she was confused by this greeting. Now, here's the problem. Um, this argument from the Greek word, it just simply isn't true. Um, one of the main reasons that this falls apart is there's another time, there's only one other time in the New Testament where this Greek word here is used. And it's used in Ephesians 1:16. Which says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That phrase there, has blessed us, is the same word in Luke 1. And who is this being applied to? Every Christian. Every single Christian in Christ has been filled with grace. We are all in Christ full of grace. It's the same Greek word. If you're going to argue it means fullness to perfection, then you've just made the entire Christian church perfect. The word simply doesn't mean perfect. And that's why the more uh, later English translations have sort of gone away from this ancient phrase, full of grace. And they've given a more literal, the King James is not literal in that verse. The modern translations are actually giving a literal rendition of this, which the, the Greek word just simply means to be blessed, to be favored. Anytime God shows grace to you, anytime you receive the grace of God, you get the word applied to you. You are full of grace, or more specifically, you are highly favored. The word does not mean perfect. And let me ask, in context, it's very easy to see, why is Mary favored? Uh, According to the context of the passage, why is the angel calling Mary a favored one? What? What has happened where God has shown her this peculiar favor? Is it because she's perfect? No. It's because God chose her to be the prophesied virgin to give birth to the God-man. She's being favored because she's being chosen to be the mother of God. the, The angel is not talking about something intrinsic to Mary's being. He's talking about her circumstances. You are highly favored of God. And then what does the text say? Mary gets confused. Oh, how? I don't seem any different. I don't seem any more blessed than anyone else around me. How am I favored of God? Because in your womb was conceived a son. She is favored because God anointed her as the mother of God. It's not because she's perfect. That's not what the text says The fact remains that this doctrine, that Mary lived a perfect life or was conceived in perfection, is taught nowhere in Scripture. Scripture doesn't have a word to say about it. But there's a third argument that's even stronger. It's stronger than church history. It's stronger than the silence of Scripture, and that is the teachings of Scripture. Not only does the scriptures not say a word about Mary's alleged perfection, they actually speak pretty plainly and clearly against it. The scriptures speak very positively that Mary was in fact a sinner. And we get this in two ways. The first way is the Bible's regular condemnation of all of humanity. The Bible will regularly speak of the sin of Adam affecting every single human being that is not the God-man. All mere mortals have been affected by sin. We get this all throughout the Bible. Just one example, Psalm 143, 2. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Let me ask you this question. Had the psalmist met every single person on the face of the earth when he wrote that? How does he know that there's, no, there's not a single righteous person on the face of the earth? He's never met him. How could he possibly know that? Because he is aware theologically of the condition of human beings. I don't need to meet a person to know they're a sinner. I don't need to meet you to know that you've sinned. Because there is no one righteous before God. All have sinned. This is the theological standpoint that even in the Old Testament they're already working with. And this is why John, could so boldly say in one of his epistles if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if you do meet someone who says that they've not sinned you can know they're a liar by the way this is an epistle that Mary would have had in her Bible Mary would have read this Mary would have gone to church and heard this preached does this apply to Mary? I think it does It applies to all human beings. But there is actually no better. These are just proof texts. The Bible doesn't just give us proof texts. We have a systematic approach to the condition of human beings. Turn with me. I want you to see it in your own Bibles. Turn with me. You can keep your marker here. but Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We're going to read a long portion, but it's mostly self-explanatory. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, Paul has just spent a good amount of time talking about how non-Jewish people, that's what we mean when we talk about Gentiles, a Gentile is any person who's not a Jew. Non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, are all sinners. But Paul is afraid that the Jews are going to think they're not sinners. Because we've been talking about Gentiles. So Paul goes off to to make sure that the Jews understand that they're sinners too. So this is what he says in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. Let's stop there. Paul could not be more clear that all men, Jew or Gentile, are conceived and born and live in sin. Anytime you meet another fellow human being, you are meeting a sinner who needs God's grace. And Mary was Jewish. So she's in here. This includes Mary. Now, believe it or not, I can actually, in my opinion, it gets a little controversial after this, I think I can summon more than just universal condemnation. I actually believe the Bible gives us examples of Mary herself sinning. A lot of even Protestants don't agree with me on this. They say, well, yeah, she falls under the universal condemnations, but it's not like the Bible has to list every single person, right? You're not going to find a Bible verse that says Colin Brooks has sinned. Right? We don't need that. And it's true, we don't need it. But I actually think the Bible gives it to us. I am of the minority report that think the Bible, on more than one occasion, portrays a sinning Mary to us. I, I want you to see some of these passages. And by the way, the passages, some of them we're going to look at are the very ones I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon how some of the early theologians were very crystal clear that Mary was a sinner they weren't writing about the universal condemnation of all men they were commenting in almost every case on Bible verses where they saw Mary sinning explicitly so you're going to see some of the verses that the ancient theologians looked at and said yeah, Mary's a sinner, look at her Not universal condemnation, specific condemnation. Here's one that I often turn to. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. This is not popular among the early church, but I think it's a strong case nonetheless. Mark chapter 3. We're going to begin in verses 20 and 21, and then we're going to jump down a little bit later. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus is in the midst of his ministry. He's drawing a lot of attention through his teachings and his miracles. He's just selected his 12 disciples to be his inner group, his inner circle to follow him. And this happens after he selects the 12 and a great crowd has begun to follow him. Mark chapter 3 verse 20. Then he went home. This is important. He's at home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Jesus goes home and draws attention, and the attention is bothering the family. They're trying to have supper. But all of Jerusalem is crowded outside their house demanding to hear more from Jesus. So they're flustered. They're stressed. You can kind of imagine. It's, it's hard to have company, let alone the entire city, raging outside your front door. You're trying to have dinner. So the family, they, he goes home and his family goes outside and tries to stop him from preaching because he's out of his mind. You know, it's a colloquial phrase for saying he's out of his mind. They're calling him crazy. The dude's lost his marbles. Get inside, Jesus. Let me ask you something. Would a perfect person call Jesus crazy? Would a perfect person try to stop Jesus' ministry? Now you say, well, this doesn't mention Mary. Well, I think it does. He's at home. Who lives at home? The family. And who is it that goes outside? The family. I think we have reason to lump Mary in unless the text tells us, by the way, this was just his brothers and sisters and Joseph. This wasn't Mary. Everyone except for Mary, the whole family except for Mary went outside. Mary was inside telling them, no, he's not crazy. He's the son of God. The text doesn't exclude Mary. So all we can do is when it says home and family is imagine his whole family, including one of the most important pieces of any family, the mom. And by the way, if you think that I'm really just reading way too much in this, Mark, not long after this, gives us another blunder from Jesus' family. And he does include Mary, not long after this. Look down at verses 31 through 35. Again, so this is only ten verses later. Jesus and his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Mary is explicitly mentioned now, Mary and the rest of Jesus' family has gone to a different location where he is, and they are again trying to get him out. You're embarrassing the family. Stop it, come out. And when the messengers say, "Hey Jesus, your mom's outside. She wants you to stop. Jesus ignores her. He essentially says, "Spiritually speaking, that ain't my mom. The people in this room at my feet, this is my family. The people outside calling me crazy, trying to get me to stop, they are less family to me than the people who do the will of God. Jesus rebukes his mother. This is a rebuke. It's subtle, it's not explicit, I grant that. But the entire chapter of Mark chapter 3 is Jesus' family, his mom included, misunderstanding who he is and what he's doing and making impure requests of him making requests that no perfect person would ever make. But believe it or not, this is just my opinion. This isn't even the text that the church fathers went to. What were some of the texts that the church fathers argued, showed Mary sin? Here's kind of a complicated one, but it's important. You don't have to turn there. This is Luke chapter 2. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother... Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, this is kind of a complicated text, and I'm not saying this is like the absolute way to understand it, but let me just tell you how the church fathers understood this. The church fathers understood that Simeon was making a prophecy about Mary and her son, And she was saying that one day, in order for the unbelief in the evil that is secretly buried in the hearts of Israel, this young boy is going to draw out that unbelief. And many are going to doubt him. And their unbelief is going to be revealed, and they are going to doubt him. And by the way, we see that in the New Testament. After Jesus' death, all of his disciples walk away. They all think they failed. And when Jesus resurrects, he has to rebuke them. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken right so we see this sort of apostasy all these people come in a doubt I guess, I guess, I guess he wasn't the Messiah I guess he wasn't the son of God and, and the argument from the church fathers is that this little thing in parentheses is they're saying Mary even you are going to be pierced with this sort of doubt even you are going to be one of the ones in Israel where your unbelieving heart is going to be revealed your heart among all these people even jesus's own mom is going to be pierced with this sword of doubt now again it's a complicated verse i don't know if that's exactly what it's saying but it just goes to show that the bible is getting pretty close to condemning mary in more than one text here's another really popular one that they would oftentimes turn to this is from john chapter 2 on the third day there was a wedding at cana in galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Again, a complicated text, but the way the early church fathers read this was Mary making an impure, unholy request. And we know, that. so what the way they interpret is, when Mary goes up to Jesus and says, we're out of wine, she's, she's being passive aggressive. What is she doing? She's saying, Jesus, give them the wine. You're the miracle worker. Fix this situation. Mary comes in, and the way the church fathers read this, she begins bossing her son around. And that's why Jesus rebukes her. What does this have to do with me? My time has not come. Let me just ask you this. I know the text doesn't explicitly say what Mary was implying or that she sinned. But do you at least get the impression that Jesus responds to a person who has made a request that a perfect human being wouldn't? Like Jesus doesn't seem thrilled with whatever Mary is doing. And that's just bare minimum. I, I think the text is a rebuke. John Chrysostom, who is the man who converted Augustine, so this is a very early theologian, he went so far to say that this text shows the exceeding arrogance of Jesus' mother who is trying to flaunt her authority over her son. You don't have to agree with that, but all I'm saying is very smart men throughout the history of the church have read this text and seen Mary did something wrong. And, and if none of that convinces you, if you're still saying, I don't know, pastor, those are all kind of, you know, implications, and they don't explicit. Let me just remind you that Mary herself said she needed the Savior. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Perfect people don't need saving. Now, I want to be clear. Please don't think that I took this sermon on to try to bash Mary. Right? I'm not bashing her, and I'm I'm not trying to portray Mary like she was this exceptionally wicked human being. Uh, To the contrary, I want to lay my cards out on the table. I actually think overall, the scriptures present Mary as one of the models of godliness in scripture. I think the mother of Jesus is a a woman in scripture that every woman in this church should look to as a model of Christian living. You should want to be like Mary. I, I firmly believe that. I am not here bashing her or trying to crush her. But I actually believe that if Mary were in this church today, she would actually be thankful about the words coming out of my mouth. I think what truly would grieve Mary is not pointing out that she sinned. I think what would truly break her heart is trying to claim she didn't. Can you imagine if after you died, some cult sprung up? An exalted Jew is a perfect human being who never sinned, and every single Sunday they gathered together to pray to you and to thank God that you were a perfect human being. Would that make you feel good about yourself? Not me. I would want to come back and say, Guys, please stop. Please ask my wife. I'm not perfect. We grieve Mary, we offend her, we insult her when we try to pretend like she rivals the holiness of Christ. That's what's bashing Mary. That's bashing Mary. I'm not bashing Mary. I'm simply saying that her, like everyone in this room, needs Jesus to save her from her sins. That's not a bash. That's the case for every human being we meet. And so let it be known that Mary's sinlessness, especially her immaculate conception, is a man-made tradition. It has no meaningful historical support and it is soundly refuted by the word of God. But let's make this about Christmas. You're probably This is Advent season, right? Let's make this about Christmas because here's what I don't want you to hear me saying. I don't want you to hear me saying that we don't believe in the Immaculate Conception. We do. Everyone is right that back in our text, in Luke chapter 1, there is an Immaculate Conception. We believe in the Immaculate Conception. It's just not Mary's. Who is it that was conceived... Immaculately, Look at Luke chapter 1 again, verses 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. We believe in the Immaculate Conception. It's just Jesus's. Jesus was the one conceived without sin. Not just born without sin. Conceived without sin. He is the one who lived a perfect life. He is the perfect one. Not Mary. And this is why he, we have hope. Because if he was not perfect, he couldn't be our mediator. So he had to be perfect in order to be our mediator. And here's another thing look at the logic of the text. What was necessary in order for Jesus' conception to uh, produce a holy child? What was a necessary element? The virginity and the spirit. The logic of the text is according to Gabriel, how did Jesus, who is truly conceived of a real human being, yet he just gets this pass? He just skips out on the sin that all of us inherit from our parents. Why did not Jesus inherit original sin from his mother? And what's the logic of the angel? Whether you agree with it or not, I'm not interested in. What's the logic of the angel? Because there is no father involved, the Holy Spirit is the one who conceived this child. So because it was a spirit-wrought virgin birth, Christ was able to be conceived in perfection. So the logic of the Spirit is if you have a mom and a dad, you're not perfect. So if you're going to argue from this logic of Scripture that Mary was perfect, she can't have a dad. But she did. No one thinks Mary was born of a virgin. There is, according to the logic of scripture, if Mary had a normal conception like everybody else, then she received the normal sin that everybody else received. And the reason Jesus didn't receive it is because he didn't have a normal conception. It was a supernatural conception of the spirit in the womb of a virgin. That's why he skipped out on Adam's sin. The glory of Christmas is that Jesus was immaculately conceived. A virgin gave birth. This is supposed to be a contradiction. That's the glory of Christmas. And because he was conceived perfectly and lived a perfect human life, we now have hope of salvation. Let's end here. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. His sinlessness... His immaculate conception and His sinless life are key to our salvation. Without it, we cannot be saved. Hebrews chapter 4. Go all the way past first and second Timothy. Go past Titus. Go past Philemon. And you get to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If Jesus is not perfect, we have no hope. Because you see, In order for us to have confidence and hope that our mediator can give us salvation, he has to be two things. He has to be a human. He has to be able to sympathize with our weaknesses and our temptations. And Jesus was that. But he also needs to be perfect. He needs to be without sin. And because Jesus was both man yet perfect, let us then draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Because He is our all-sufficient mediator, we can have confidence to find grace. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is what makes Christmas so special. On on Christmas night, the world's only perfect person was born. When you celebrate Christmas with your family, you celebrate the remarkable truth truth that a perfect human being was born, conceived without sin, born without sin, lived without sin. A man actually existed who perfectly fulfilled the law of God. A man was actually born who loved God perfectly every second of his life. A man was actually born who never once gave in to any temptation. Jesus lived without ever an inappropriate word, an impure thought, a sinful outburst of anger, doubt, He overcame all temptations and lived perfectly under the law of God with no defilement. On Christmas, the perfect son of God was born and he alone gets that title. He's the perfect one. He is pure. He is sinless. He alone is the spotless man.